Welcome to the second season of Courage Incorporated, produced by the Walrus Lab. Join me as we hear from courageous and powerful voices from the world of business and policy who have the incredible task of directing the future of their industries with courage. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. This episode is dedicated to the people of Ukraine, who at the time of this recording are fighting to preserve the freedom and independence of their country. The oil and gas industry is under pressure to accelerate towards a decarbonized future. The energy transition has quickly become their priority. Society and the marketplace demand it. Oil and gas companies are traveling down the green path, making green investments like carbon capture, hydrogen molecular use, and producing hydrogen fuel. Beyond that, they're pivoting to new ways of becoming energy companies, which lets them engage in a broader range of technologies. And these efforts require bold and courageous leadership. Who better to change an oil and gas company from the inside than its first chief climate officer, Martha Hall Findlay, who holds this role at Suncor and is joining us in conversation today. Martha, thanks for being here. Can you share with us your personal story of leadership from a young woman who was a competitive athlete to a member of parliament to your role today as the chief climate officer of one of Canada's iconic energy company, Suncor? Where did this journey begin and who inspired you and how has your journey evolved? Thanks, Duncan, and thanks so much for the invitation. I hate to think of how long ago the journey actually did start. That would be dating me rather significantly. Um, you know, it's pretty cliche, but your parents, um, I was very lucky to have parents. My mom passed away quite a few years ago, but still remains to this day, by far and away, the best read person I have ever met in my life. Everything, politics, economics, philosophy, fiction, nonfiction. She just was immensely curious about the world and certainly left that as, as a legacy to her kids. And curiosity, frankly, I think is, is one of the most important things for anything that, that we do in life and certainly for leadership. And, and my dad, who fought in World War II, he was one of the Canadians who landed on D-Day, one of the group that helped liberate Holland. It was awful. And, you know, he didn't talk about it much, but man, you know, courage is manifested in many different ways. And knowing, you know, him coming back from that experience, you know, he's a successful businessman, and but there's no question that was a challenge for him his whole life. And we also learn from those experiences. I mean, he was, he was a wonderful guy, but as generations pass, we learn from, from the, the, the really great examples. And we also learn from some of the challenges. And, um, I was fortunate enough to have both. I also grew up with four older siblings and a younger one. You can't grow up with four, four older siblings and not, and not blur, just had a kind of old your own. And I think that spoke to the, uh, to the competitive sports piece. You just, you, you can't avoid it. And I just, you know, this is about courage. I do want to give a shout out to the, to the sixth sibling, my youngest sister, who showed immense courage battling breast cancer. And, you know, after a few decades, uh, ultimately succumbed not too long ago. And, and I look to her, you know, you talk about courage and I look to her and her family as, as the epitomes of that and, and all the people who go through similar challenges. The one thing I think that has been constant, Duncan, for me, because I look back and I, and I, sometimes you look at my career path and you wonder, wow, what, you know, how come I could figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up? Um, because it is pretty varied, but 
you know, it includes law, it includes business, it includes public policy, it includes politics, it, it includes certainly what I'm doing now. But there is a current theme. I grew up, and again, I think this was very part, very much because of both of my parents, a real fan of Canada, really proud of what Canada is, and, and really, frankly, sometimes frustrated that we are not we are not reaching our full potential. And certainly in the last few decades, frustration on my part, we're, we're blessed. We are so blessed in this country. With we, we have, in the last few decades, it feels like we've almost forgotten how important those are to the, to the frankly, economic, but also social prosperity that we have. And somehow it feels like we're almost shooting ourselves in, in the foot. You know, you have people who are almost embarrassed by our mineral resources, what we've done in terms of our energy resources and yet the accomplishments and the things that, that that these things have contributed to Canada are so extraordinary. So a big part of of the various things I've done in my life, Duncan, have been um how do we make Canada really fulfill its its full potential? Well no, it's interesting, Martha, because because my dad was a veteran of World War II also and he was also in D Day. So it's an interesting thing we share and, and I agree with you. I think probably for both of us there's a how do we honor that legacy in the way we're really trying to help to build out the country that so many young Canadians, you know, fought for or gave their lives for? I, I, I understand and I, I share regret for the loss of your sister. I know it's hard to lose a loved one to cancer, and I do respect your, your openness in sharing that part of your story with us. I realize that that's, that's not an easy thing to do. So you made the choice to join Suncor in January of 2020. And you took on a really important leadership role for our country in, in helping such an iconic Canadian organization deal with the important issues of climate and energy. And it really put you in the spotlight around a, a critically important issue for our country and one that's been, you know, engaging multiple stakeholders with very different points of view. As you look at your relationship with your customers and the communities in which you operate, what are you doing to increase trust? at a time when your industry has been facing a lot of really tough scrutiny? Well, I, I would first say that um, I joined Suncor a couple of years ago very much because of what Suncor has already been doing for decades, frankly, whether it comes to the environment, even emissions reductions, although that's been a bit newer, but even in the last decade, reducing emissions intensity, certainly for barrel significantly, but working with Indigenous communities, to be clear, my title is Chief Climate Officer. But up until a little while ago, when I was hired, I was hired to be Chief Sustainability Officer. Suncor's had a Chief Sustainability Officer for quite a few years. This was not new for Suncor. And my predecessors have all contributed immensely to the performance that is absolutely critical to developing trust. You can't develop trust by talking. You have to actually do you have to perform and you have to perform well and so you know i hope we get a chance to talk a little bit in more detail about some of those activities but but i would i would take one as an example for suncor uh our petro canada so suncor is a an oil sands company we produce oil we upgrade we refine we have refineries in canada and the united states we have offshore projects both in the united kingdom norway and off the east coast of canada and we also have the whole of the Petro-Canada distribution network. One of the things that we did a couple of years ago, even at the end of 2019, it was announced, 
you too could drive an electric vehicle across the entire country of Canada. The reason you can do that is because we put in fast charging stations at enough Petro-Canada stations that are close enough together that you can actually drive coast to coast. Uh, can't do coast to coast to coast because in most cases that's hard to find even a road that will do that. You know, and I talk to my European colleagues and, you know, I talk about the fast charging stations and you get a little bit of, oh yeah, well, we've done that too. And I said, no, no, wait a second. Can we just get out a map? Because, you know, France is one thing, Canada is huge. And so that's a really important aspect of what we do. So for Suncor, it's not only what we do ourselves, but it's also what we do increasingly that allows our customers to have choice. Right. So putting in fast charging stations at Petro-Canada stations would seem a little bit inconsistent, right? We're, we're an oil and, and a fuel company. But for us, that's actually a very, very important thing. We're also very much in the electricity business as well. But um, that was something that was directly focused on customers. Well, just to pick up on your point, Martha, about trust being based on action, not words. You've given us a great illustration of the shift of Suncor from a place to gas up my car and stop at a convenience store when I'm on the highway to a place where I can go and charge up my electric vehicle so I could drive from Victoria all the way to St. John's, Newfoundland. What are some of the other important actions you've taken to build out that trust? And where do you want to take Suncor's brand, particularly when it comes to Suncor's approach to environment, social and governance initiatives? Well, I think in some ways, like I said, I wouldn't have joined Suncor if it hadn't already established itself as a, as a company uh, with a great reputation in various areas. And we talk about ESG, environment, social and governance, and those are really important. There's no question that greenhouse gas emissions are the elephant in the room of ESG. And, you know, we can talk uh, a help about the, the, um, the Oil Sense Pathways to Net Zero initiative, which Suncor has been instrumental in, in founding and, and proceeding with. Uh, but Suncor on its own, too, in many areas, reducing emissions per barrel. People don't think that's enough. We absolutely recognize we needed to go to absolute emissions. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that we were seen as the real bad guys, right? With terrible reputation, a barrel of Canadian oil is now, in terms of emissions, on a par with the North American average, which really means we're, we're not, you know, we've made huge progress, but we've also done a pretty terrible job of telling people about that. That's our efforts to reduce emissions, the elephant in the room. We also established this um, Oil Sands Pathways to Net Zero initiative last year, which now encompasses the six major players. We represent 95%, in effect, all of the oil sands production in Canada. We're all competitors, yet we're all collaborating to reach net zero by 2050. And I keep saying to people, you know, we're not a, a software company. We're not a retail chain. We're oil sands. This is a really tough nut to crack, and we are absolutely bent on making it happen. Can we do it alone? Of course not. It's requiring significant collaboration with each other as competitive companies, but also with the federal government, with the Alberta government. Um, that said, it's extremely exciting because we've been referred to, the Pathways uh, to Net Zero Alliance has been referred to as a one-of-a-kind global because it's every competitor in the in the sector all collaborating together and not just sharing intellectual property, but actually sharing infrastructure. So, you know, we have a big task ahead of us, but we're very excited about that. I, I would go further, though, and, and, ex, and expand a little bit on the ESG non-greenhouse gas emissions, because as important as that is, 
when you look at just as Canadian companies, we work and live in a country that stands up to the rule of law. So, you know, when it comes to governance, when it comes to social activity, the engagement with Indigenous communities. I mean, Suncor has been a leader in Canada. I, I firmly believe a global leader, if not the global leader, in engagement in Indigenous reconciliation now for decades. Has it been perfect? Of course not. Has it been in the right direction? Yes. Is it going to continue in that direction even more? Absolutely. But, you know, I'm really proud of that. There are lots of countries around the world that have just not recognized that there is even is a history of Indigenous and engagement and colonialism that needs to be addressed. And as not perfect as it is in Canada, I'm really quite proud of the fact that we're making, we're making uh, strides. Martha, can you just share with us a bit more about how that uh, commitment to Indigenous reconciliation has been evolving within Suncor in the time you've been there? Absolutely. Um, I was, of course, hoping you'd ask that question. <laughs> So the oil sands are up in northern Alberta. There are a significant number of First Nations communities there, Métis communities. And the focus originally, and I, and I would say Syncrude as well, which Suncor now operates, both companies, both operations, really focused heavily on engaging people from the Indigenous communities. So from an employment perspective. I mean, it was only good business, frankly, to engage in the people that are in the communities in which you operate. So it's really starting with employment opportunities and training, but that actually progressed, you know, we're, we're going back a couple of decades now. That, pro that progressed into more opportunities for procurement. And so working with communities and developing capacity to produce goods and, ser and provide services, that then fostered a greater level of income into these communities, a virtuous circle, if you will, because that then created more opportunities for some of the young people to go and, and, and obtain higher education that has now been able to come back into the communities. And now we're into full equity partnerships. Suncor signed its second, not its first, its second actual full equity partnership with First Nations and Métis communities just this past year. We call it the Astasy Project. The first one was our East Tank Farm Project. 2017, I believe that one was signed. It's it's just extraordinary to see what these full partnerships do in terms of these are not handouts. This is generation from business activities going directly into these communities as equity partners. It it's really quite extraordinary, and there will definitely be more to come. Another important partner in the whole question of how we create more sustainable societies is government and public policy, and how that continues to evolve. You have deep experience in that as well. Can you give us your perspective on how government has changed its approach to these issues? Then I, I would actually phrase it as what I see as having changed. And that comes from my work in the public policy world before I joined Suncor. Being very honest, there were some real frustrations with some government folk being fairly ideological in their perspectives on how energy and climate and environment can actually work together. There's no question there are some who have been advocating just shut it all down. And that's a challenge on, on a couple of levels. One is obviously the economic and national unity challenges, but also this industry spends more money than anybody else and has done for years on clean tech, right? So 
you know, to, to shut the industry down is, is shooting your nose up to spite your face. And it's also challenging because the Canadian industry is a global player, right? You shut down the Canadian industry. And, and I do hope we have a chance to talk a little bit about geopolitics. It is frustrating that efforts to shut down the Canadian industry have resulted in us not being able to help with oil and gas to the United States while the Americans are having to ask other other countries like Venezuela and Iran and Saudi Arabia. I'll leave that uh, irony for your listeners to, to digest for a few moments. What I have seen, especially at the federal government level, has been a really welcome, okay, let's really nail down the facts. What are we doing? We need to reduce emissions. We at the, at the oil sands went to the government a year and a half ago and said, look, we're responsible for 10% of Canada's emissions, just the oil sands. That's a really big part of the Canadian challenge in terms of emissions reductions. And so we said, we therefore have to be a big part of the solution. How can we collaborate? We can't do it alone. And this ties into your question about trust. I think it spoke volumes that it was the industry that went to government, not the other way around. It was industry that went to government and said, look, we have a big job to do. How do we get this done? How do we, do, how do we manage to do it together? And huge kudos to the current federal government. The reception was a little uncertain at first. I'm not going to, you know, not going to kid you. But it didn't take long for that trust to, to develop and for folks to recognize we were serious, we are serious, and recognize that it has to be a collaboration. And so in the last two years, I would say the level of recognition in the Canadian government, certainly among senior participants, has been from, you know, let's not talk to each other to absolute, how are we going to collaborate? What are we going to do together? Because reducing Canada's emissions is in fact reducing Canada's emissions. How do we respond as a country? Um, so, so a shout out to the governments who've been involved in recognizing it took a bit, but recognizing that we're, um, we are in, in fact part of the solution and, and that we need to collaborate. Martha, at the time we're recording our conversation, the people of Ukraine are fighting to preserve the freedom and independence of their country. The conflict with Russia and Belarus and the related economic sanctions are creating real issues of energy sovereignty for many countries in Europe with a cascading effect around the globe. As you say, energy is a global industry. And while we've talked about issues of our own industrial sovereignty in many industries in Canada through the pandemic, we've not fully understood the implications of our choices with respect to our energy and our contribution to the world. Martha, as you see the issue of Canada as a global energy partner to our allies, where and how do we need to change? First off, obviously our thoughts are, are with the Ukrainian people. And the challenge is that we're not able to help more than, than we would like to help. And the challenge is that Canada is not able to help um, Europe more than we would like to be able to do. And, and uh, go back, Duncan, to both of our fathers having fought in World War II was very much, uh, um, for them in particular, a European, uh, a European challenge. And fast forward to now, and Europe is heavily dependent on Russia for both uh, oil and gas, especially gas. And we may not like it, but that's where that's where the system has arrived at. I think everyone was lulled into this view that we were in a new world order. You know that kind of reliance, that kind of dependence, won't won't be a problem. And lo and behold, it most certainly is. 
And the challenge that we have in Canada is that we've been so focused on climate, not to take away from the importance of climate, but we have abandoned or canceled project after project after project of infrastructure that would have allowed us right now to be able to help. So, you know, whether it's directly to Europe, witness Germany just in the, in the last couple of weeks, completely going to building big LNG um, projects where you can, they can actually take in LNG and uh, liquid natural gas and turn it back to natural gas that's usable for Europeans. We were being called by government people saying, what can you do to help supply? And our answer could be nothing, but up until five years ago, there were almost 20 LNG projects uh, on the table for, for potential approval. Only one is going ahead, and that one still won't be ready until at least 2023, 2024. We had the Keystone Pipeline was canceled by the U.S. administration. And now the United States, President Biden is calling up uh, Venezuela, Maduro in Venezuela and the, the people in Iran against whom we have significant sanctions. And there's a reason for that or the Saudi Arabians. And part of that is because we we're pretty much at capacity. We might be able to increase a little bit, but we're pretty much at capacity in Canada. We can't actually help provide energy either to the United States any more than we do or to Europe or even to, to Asia, which is going to become an, the next area of real concern in terms of energy security. Um, the, the issue here, Duncan, though, is unfortunately, there's a fair bit of, well, we could have, should have conversations. There are a fair number of those conversations going on. That's not helping. We have to sit down with our American colleagues, with our European colleagues. We have to sit down with anybody who's interested in really making sure that we evolve globally into an energy secure environment. I used the, 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 the term the other day, what we need now is an energy NATO. You know, when, it, when NATO was formed, um, it was formed because military strength was in fact global strength. That was where the power lay. We now see that strength lies in, in finance, now that global finance doesn't rely necessarily on political borders and absolutely energy. And, and Canada is well positioned to be a strong supporter of like-minded countries and their energy security needs. We just need to look forward and, and maybe, um, maybe revisit some of our policies so that we can be more of, uh, of a greater help globally than, than we are right now, frankly. Martha, I think one of the tension points in all of this is going to be keeping alignment with some of the longer-term goals that you described earlier in this conversation where members of the environmental movement might see this as an opportunity for government to backtrack on climate change commitments. As you navigate your way between the different groups you've talked about, where do you see hope and where do you have concerns about the direction that we're taking? Well, I absolutely see hope. Um, that's part of my personality. Um, but I think before even trying to go down to, to answer that question, Duncan, we have to be really, really clear. It's not either or. So for the oil sands companies in Canada, we're not saying we want to be able to supply oil. And, and in fact, the larger oil and gas industry in Canada, we want to be able to su supply oil and gas to meet global demand, particularly the needs of like-minded countries. We are not going back on our climate commitment one iota. It has to be both. And so, you know, nothing has changed in terms of the, the oil sands pathway to net zero um, effort. Our phase one to 2030, phase two to 2040, then the, the final phase to 2050, 
None of that has changed with geopolitics. Um, our view is our goal to become net zero, to significantly reduce emissions early on and then ultimately be net zero. Why would we not then there, therefore be the preferred source of oil and gas in the world, right? So it's not just to address some of the global energy security needs, which frankly, Canada should be front row center in terms of building the infrastructure to be able to do that. But it's not either or. We want to make sure that we are there, not only because of like-minded countries wanting energy security, but because we're going to be producing um, a net zero barrel of oil, right, to be able to, to provide to the world and, and, of course, gas as well. So I, that has to be the conversation. I really hope that the conversations that, that, as I said before, have been improved dramatically with governments improved dramatically with some of the participants who have realized, frankly, I think COP26 was a bit of a wake-up call. It's going to be really hard. Just dreaming about it is not going to happen. It's going to take an extraordinary amount of money. It's going to take an extraordinary amount of will. It's going to take an extraordinary amount of reality that this is not going to happen tomorrow. You know, listening to some saying, well, this is perfect for Europe. They'll just go, you know, 100% to renewables. That, you know, it'd be interesting to have that conversation with some people on the street who rely on gas for their heat and for their cooking and how long it will take to be able to get off of that kind of an energy source. Reality is reality. And my, my sense is that more and more of the discussions are centered around, okay, pointing fingers, assigning blame, hoping, you know, unicorns and rainbows, that's not going to cut it. How do we actually get this done? We're of like mind. We want to make sure we produce energy and make sure that it's, an, it's uh, the best done for the climate. How do we work together? And, that, and that's my sense, is that, that the conversations, if anything, ought to become more aligned in terms of collaboration. You talked earlier in our conversation about the importance of getting the story out getting the facts out of what's really will it take. And taking that as a, as a great example, even if you said the energy industry would understand that there needs to be over time, a shift in the balance of sourcing of energy, just how many decades would it take to actually have the energy industry and science collaborating together to say, here's what this would actually require. Are we all prepared to do this? I think would help to ground the debate, as you say, in more facts and sort of, you know, less hope. Not that we shouldn't be hopeful. The challenge, and I'll go right back to your trust question at the beginning. The industry that I chose to join a couple of years ago, um, I, I made that choice not, I, my eyes were wide open. And I will say, even now, there are some members of my extended family who don't really talk to me because I've gone to, I've gone to the dark side, right? There is a lack of trust. There is a lack of credibility in this industry. And some of it is deserved. I'm not going to lie. There are some of the majors spending millions and millions and millions of dollars lobbying in the United States and Washington, which is how Washington operates. Um, that's not us here in Canada. Um, and I made a point of joining a company that I had already had tremendous respect for because of what it had done in terms of performance, in terms of the past, in terms of values. I mean, Suncor's that supported a price on carbon for 20 years. Um, you know, most people don't know that either. There's no question, though, a part of what I want to be able to do is say, look, we are performing. We are doing these things. I wouldn't have joined if I hadn't known that in terms of reputation. 
but an awful lot of other people don't. And so for me, part of my job is to be able to talk to people or talk with people and say, this is what we're doing. We know we can't do it alone. We're not evil. <laughs> you, you know, we're, we're really good people who have done extraordinary, innovative, technological things to be able to produce energy. It's those same people who are innovative, creative, and able to produce, you know, do incredible technological things that will help solve the, the, the climate challenge. And so um, I'm excited about it. it. It's not always an easy conversation because we have a bit of a credibility gap, to be sure. But um, I'm confident that the more we engage and the more we have these really open conversations, the more people will realize, yes, that we're in this together. Let's, let's figure out how to collaborate rather than divide. It would be great to get your reflections on your industry's ongoing investments and innovation, as well as fitting that into the changing ways that we're going to live and work in a post-pandemic world. There are three aspects to everything that is happening in the digital world in terms of improvements. Uh, one, it's, it's really important just from a business perspective. Um, every business is, is embracing it just to be able to render our activities more efficient, more effective. The second interesting aspect of it, though, is that the rise of everything digital and the incredible use of, of networks and um, the internet means we have huge use of clouds and which are not really clouds, as you know, they're big, big banks of servers that require an incredible amount of energy to run. So there's a whole side piece of how do we actually make sure that we provide enough energy that is clean energy to, uh, to, to power the digital revolution, if, if you will. The other aspect is that we do see digital transformation as being a significant part of the uh, emissions reduction challenge. The opportunity to measure emissions, the opportunity to put together algorithms that can help actually processes where you're reducing your energy use, all of those are also part of everything that we do. So it's every day, Duncan, that we're working with the digital, a variety of digital transformations. It's pretty exciting. Martha, as you think about where the world is going to go next between your industry and public policy and some of the global conversations that we've been having, this notion of getting your story out about the innovations that you are doing, what more do you think the industry should do to help people understand just how progressive you're trying to be? Take every opportunity for honest conversations. Um, and that's far, far more difficult. It's, it's much easier said than done. The industry has been challenged. There ha there's no question there have been times when the industry, folks in the industry have felt somehow, you know, if we just put up pictures of, you know, green fields and wind farms that people will somehow think that we're, we're, you know, everything we do is green. And that's not the case. And so we, I think, have actually created more, almost more challenge for ourselves by sidestepping. So, you know, there, there were a few years where the industry talked about, well, you know, somebody would talk about climate and the, and the answer would sometimes be, well, yes, but, you know, we're responsible for so many jobs, right? Or, you know, we're much more ethical than some of the other global suppliers of energy. And, and when I joined, or actually from long before I joined, I watched what was happening from the outside and I kept saying, no, no, people are, they're not not worried about ethics. They're not not worried about jobs and economics, but they came to you with a question about emissions and you're answering a completely different question. 
And by not answering the question that was being put on the table at the time, being emissions reduction, the, the industry did itself a disservice. Frankly, it felt like it was deflecting. I mean, I was watching this from the outside thinking, no, don't, don't, you know, answer the question. And the minute it feels like you're deflecting, it, it doesn't feel honest. And so um, my, my efforts over the last couple of years have absolutely been, okay, let's start this conversation. Where are the oil sands? We're responsible for 10% of Canada's emissions. That is a really big chunk of Canada's emissions. We need to figure out how to solve this. How can we work together? And, and I have to say the first few times I've done that, there've been a couple of shocked faces around the table, but that's what we need. We need a little bit of unexpected, oh, did she just say that? Did she just acknowledge that they're you know big emitters? Yes, absolutely. And we have to be able to do that. And we have to be able to communicate it effectively in order to be able to move forward. Now, we would be remiss, Martha, not to mention your recognition by the British High Commissioner in Canada and the Canada Climate Law Initiative as one of their 26 Canadian climate champions. As you look to the future and the commitments made at last year's COP26, what do you see as the critical initiatives that you want to lean into to help catalyze the energy industry and move it forward? Well, first, that was a huge honor. It was completely unexpected. I work. I work in the oil industry, right, or have done for the last two years. Um, and there's no question some people felt that that was a little out of place. A huge kudos to the people involved because, you know, if, if our oil sands pathways to net zero initiative works, we will be responsible by far the single biggest reduction of Canadian emissions that has been accomplished to date, by far. Um, even now, we're looking at other sectors still really struggling to, to figure out how to do this. So, you know, I, I really, really appreciated the people involved in that award, recognizing the issue here is emissions. And here are some people who are really working hard to reduce emissions. So that was, that was really, really encouraging. I think my, my hope and my concern for the future is it, two sides of the same coin. The polarization, the ideological lack of lack of necessarily factual evidence, but entrenched ideas. You know, you're you're entitled to your own opinions, but you really shouldn't be entitled to your own facts. Is something we 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 work with all the time. You have to respect people's opinions, but you have to really work hard to make sure that they're based in fact, and not position it as either or, not position it these as ideological, not position these as somehow moral values. We need to reduce emissions. We need to reduce them quickly and in a really big way. How do we do that? So my hope is the other side of that. My hope is that we move away from the polarization. My hope is that we move away from some of the ideological positions that have prevented those conversations. I, I, I found that at COP26, I said a couple times, I, I mused that what I was seeing was that the extremes were extreming themselves out of the conversation. And what was left was, and still a long way from perfect, but an awful lot of people who might have different views, but recognizing that we are actually looking to try and accomplish the same thing. We might have different ways of going about it, but we need to be able to collaborate. So that's my, my, my hope is that we are going further down that path. For as awful as things are in Ukraine right now, for the, the horrible things that we're watching happen, one of the opportunities for us now is to have much more sober conversations 
about what the global energy future looks like and how we can combine global energy needs and avoid the kind of dependence that we're seeing now at the same time as reduce emissions to be able to meet net zero by 2050. It's, it's that this is not going to be easy, but the conversations are becoming a lot more realistic. More and more people realizing it's not going to be easy. So roll up your shirt sleeves. How do we get this done together? Well, Martha, thank you so much for making time for this conversation with us today. And again, on behalf of all of us here at the Walrus Lab and at Deloitte, it's been a wonderful conversation. You've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Martha, thank you for your time today and the insights you shared. These are challenging times for the energy industry in this country, and I appreciate you talking to us about all that needs to be done to create a better world. I'm your host, Duncan Sinclair. This podcast is a production of the Walrus Lab. Thanks to our producer, Camille Hemming, and our team here at Deloitte. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and tune in again soon to meet our next courageous leader.